Good Monday morning. This is Dustin Hobbs with the California NBA. Welcome to Connect, our weekly podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. We've got a great guest today. I'm excited to get in the conversation with him here in just a sec. But before we do, let's thank our sponsors over at Incelerate. Incelerate, the leading mortgage lead management CRM and engagement platform that helps lenders close more loans by increasing efficiency gains across sales, marketing, operations, and management. It's recently announced the first of its kind mobile app. This groundbreaking mobile app features full lead management, lead distribution, click-to-call, inbound call routing, first-call automation, and two-way compliant text messaging, and provides access to critical loan information without having to use a laptop or log in to your LOS system. It also empowers loan officers by intelligently distributing leads, managing pipelines, prioritizing your day, automating best practices, and personalizing the borrower's journey all from the mobile app. So for more information or to catch a demo, visit Incelerate.com, or you can call the number here listed in the description below. All right, well, I'm excited to get in the conversation now with our guest today. Let me welcome in Cody Shaparis. Cody is the Principal Managing Director at Slack Capital's uh, San Diego offices, and he's actually uh, recently joined the Board of Directors here at the California NBA. Welcome, Cody. Thanks, Dustin. I'm excited. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, tell us for a few minutes, or tell us for, uh, give us the... Uh, the elevator pitch on uh, what Slack Capital is all about for those that, that uh, aren't familiar. Sure, yeah. So our company is a family-owned uh, mortgage banking firm based in San Francisco, and we've got offices up and down the California coast. Um, primarily what we do is smaller balance commercial real estate financing. So we represent uh, individual investors that are buying and, and refinancing their commercial mortgages um and yeah we get to watch our clients grow and help them grow and uh, i love doing what i do oh great thanks for, thanks Cody. and so i have i have to admit that uh, it was a bit of a uh, a pretense there that uh, i didn't know anything about slack capital of course you guys have been members for a long 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 time and and yeah. barry slat uh, the founder of the company was one of our uh, chair at uh, at some point he actually helped uh, found our, uh, our commercial real estate finance conference and the company's been a great sponsor and uh, supporter for a long, long time. But for those in the audience that may not know, that was helpful. So, sure. Cody, let's uh, jump into your background uh, personally here. Tell us about how you got into the industry, what uh, led you to SLAT, and uh, sort of your your niche in the market. Yeah, so, you know, like a lot of folks in commercial real estate, generally, um, you know, my path was a little bit winding and strange. Um, I started first in general business world. I did primarily um uh, production uh, in the film industry in LA did that for a lot of years um and you know really running our business but had a small portion of my role was was really related to real estate so for example I you know had to manage our facilities uh for our corporate account um had to uh build out space for my employees to live in and at some at one point I had, you know, directly or indirectly about 500 employees in five different locations um, in, in different parts of the country and even parts of the world uh, report to me. And I found after a number of years that I enjoyed the real estate portion of my job more than the film portion of my job. So I started looking for the exit wings and uh, uh, my best friend actually and college roommate from USC um, had joined our firm as an analyst early on, and now he's a producer as well. And he said, you know, I love working for this group. I love the business. Here's how the business operates. And I think they could, you know, uh, you could find a position that would work for you there. Uh, I don't think there's an active job, but maybe there's something, you know, you can talk about. 
So I met with Michael in our LA office and we hit it off. And a number of months later, they offered me a position. Now it's been almost eight years and I could not be happier. I love our company. I love the people I work with and I love our industry. I, I think we've got a lot of exciting things ahead. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think you make a good, an interesting point there that, you know, and maybe even you know, without uh, uh, meaning to, but uh, it's amazing how much the real estate uh, market goes into every asset or every aspect of, uh, especially the business world. I mean, every business has to deal with real estate on some, you know, some level. So, you know, you can always, as you mentioned, you can always find an off ramp to uh, or an exit route to, uh, you know, going into real estate uh, development full time or on the uh, lending side as you've done. So Indeed. That's so tell us, I'm curious, I mean, it's obviously, it's the news of the year in 2020. You can't have a, a conversation about uh, 2020 without mentioning what's going on with the COVID-19 crisis and, and pandemic. And so I'm curious at this point, um, I almost hopefully looking back a little bit more than looking forward, uh, how has the company uh, dealt with the with the, the challenges and, uh, you know, especially on the commercial side, I know it's such a face-to-face -face, uh, relationship-based industry. So how have you guys dealt with that? Yeah, I mean, we pivoted pretty quickly in uh, using our technology forums just to be able to stay on, in touch with our teams um, and collaborate internally. Um, we actually had Zoom three years ago and we were already using it for uh, uh, bi-weekly calls with our entire company to get information out to every one of our producers about what's happening in the marketplace. So we were able to pivot that fairly quickly. Um, but you're, you're right, the face-to-face -face or lack thereof with our clients has been challenging. And what we've, we've tried to do is really stay in touch with everybody on a weekly or bi-weekly basis to just see how things are going, you know, what challenges they're having with their tenants, what challenges they're having in the marketplace generally. Um, and it's been, it's been a challenge, but it's also forced us to reinvent sort of the ways we communicate. Um, so that's been uh, interesting. You know, the industry generally is um, underwriting has changed. Um, certain, you know, lending types uh, that were available to, to some, uh, you know, retail or hospitality has become more challenging. Um, and you can read a lot of the details about, you know, everywhere uh, there. But what I have found is you know, like I said, the almost eight years being in, a, in the commercial real estate finance industry, nearly everything that I thought I knew about how to, how to finance a deal had to be tweaked in some small or major way. Um, and so that's been a, a fun, it's exciting, challenging, sometimes frustrating um, relearning experience throughout throughout all of it. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's been a, an interesting couple of months here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. I've always found in the time that I've worked here at the California MBA that that's one thing that I've always really enjoyed about both the residential and commercial side of the industries is it's never the same. There's always change. I mean, it's funny because the the end goal is always the same. I mean, whether you're buying a home or you know financing a big uh, you know a strip mall or a, a hotel or something like that, it's always the same end. But getting there has changed just radically over the years, and you know kind of gone back and forth and you know here and there and sideways at times, but. Um, you know, it's always changing, always dynamic, and I've always enjoyed that too. Um, so speaking of that change, I'm curious, what do you see as maybe the the change that's most permanent um, after all that we've gone through this year? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's there's a, some extension of trends that were happening pre-COVID with regards to retail. You know, a lot of folks were looking at retail 
uh, through the lens of the Amazon effect um, for many, many years. A lot of, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled uh, talking about that sort of uh, fundamental shift within the industry. I think that shift has taken a 10-year uh, leap forward during COVID. Um, you know, direct, direct delivery of grocery is uh, is really um, come up in a big way. You know, millions of new users. Um, so there's lots and lots of things that are happening in that space. Um, I think that is semi-permanent through COVID, you know, even post-vaccine or whatever it is that gets us out of this. Um, on the flip side, though, I think there's uh, the more immediate, um, you know, users that have been unexpectedly uh, affected, the gyms and the entertainment complexes, these things that, you know, pre-COVID we talked about as being experiential re retail or retail that's Amazon resistant, nail salons and hair salons. Um, you know, these are things that nobody expected would be as affected as they are due to the pandemic. Um, I do think that's relatively temporary. I think, you know, people are going to want to go back to the movies. They're going to want to go have a coffee. Uh, they're going to want to go to restaurants and get to, back to the gym. Um, so I think, you know, we just have to kind of bide our time and get through this period until that stuff starts to really open up in earnest. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's funny you mentioned the the movies are in our area. Uh, the uh, one of the local movie theaters finally opened up, and um, our family was there the first day. So, I mean, we're yeah. definitely anxious to get out and, and uh, you know enjoy the movies again too. Um, so, speaking of the market, I mean, you kind of touched on a few aspects there, but you know, what's your sense on the state of the market right now? Maybe some hot spots or some maybe some silver linings uh, that uh, we don't uh, necessarily see when we read the uh, newspaper every day. Yeah, I mean, look. Uh, overall transaction volume is down in every single asset type uh, sector you can imagine. Um, some a lot worse than others, um, but uh, there's not as much transaction volume. So that, you know, part of the issue is a lot of people are believing that there's valuation issues during due to COVID in certain sectors that, you know, maybe I need to write down the value of this property by 10, 15%. And we're seeing MAI appraisals do just that. Um, but because transaction volume is down, there's not a lot of market comparables to actually justify those changes. Um, so it's a difficult position to be in as a landowner right now, um, as a landlord, because on the one hand, you may or may not have an asset that um, is diminished in value um, or you know, hopefully goes up in value in some you know, way, shape or form. On the other hand, you're, you're getting some difficulties right handed to you by all the shutdown requirements, by some of the moratoriums that have happened um, on evictions, both on the multifamily and the commercial real estate side. Um, and you're getting loan relief requests to the extent that you need them and you have loans on the books. Um, but at some point, so the buck has to stop, right? Somebody has to pay for all of this. And it's, it's you know, landlords are trapped between a rock and a hard place. Bright spots, you know, I think there are some. Um, I think folks are adapting quite well and quite quickly to the new normal, whatever that is. Um, you know, the ability to have curbside dining and have um, alcohol served on, on city streets. You know, pre-COVID with the ABC laws the way they are, that could have never occurred. But now it is, and I hope that that's a permanent uh, fixture of our post-COVID era, 
that we can start to look and feel and live a little bit more the way Europe and other you know countries in the world have lived. You know, it's a quality of life issue more than anything else. And I think you know some of the habits that we can see you know can really benefit that. And obviously, work from home is a is an interesting development, and that may um, you know have some downward pressure in office space. But at the same time, a lot of people want. Uh, to have more space when they get to the office. And I have three kids at home. I, you can see I'm in my office. I don't want to be at home all the time, right? So um, I love the flexibility of being able to be at home for dinners and that sort of thing. And I, I hope that doesn't go back. But at the same time, we're not going to change our demand for office space. So I think it's just going to evolve. And the landowners, the landlords that can evolve along with that demand curve are going to be uh, do very, very well post-COVID. At least that's what I feel. Yeah. You know, and one, I couldn't agree with you more about, uh, you know, sometimes it is nice to go in the office. I've got four kids and you can only do so much work from home before, you know, even if you close and lock the door, someone's going to come and pound on the door at some point or, you know, some emergency comes up. So it is nice to kind of break away at some point and get back to the office. Um, so let's uh, switch gears here a little bit. I think you kind of touched on this a bit, but uh, um, Governor Newsom just recently announced that uh, he's extending the ability of local governments to enact uh, local commercial rent uh, moratoriums until March of next year. Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of hot off the press. This just happened this last week. Um, so I know it's early, but, you know, what's your take on uh, how that could impact the market? Yeah, I mean, you know, we all we, we knew and we've been sort of digesting the fact that multifamily was going to have this, you know, extended through because we obviously don't want to be kicking out people out of their homes when they have no income coming in. So I, I, I totally understand that. Part of the issue obviously is that, again, as I sort of mentioned, the buck stops somewhere. So, you know, these um, landlords, a lot of my clients are individual um, investors. They maybe own one apartment building, they've owned one retail center, and that's it. Their entire net worth is all built into this one asset. Um, even those that have multiple assets, you know, all of their income is coming from here. Um, and so if uh, you have a tenant that is there, regardless of their ability to pay, but they just decide not to, and they stay and we have no ability to, um, to remove them and put them in, put potentially a more suitable tenant in their place, you know, maybe a tenant that uh, can, you know, adapt better to the COVID environment, especially if this thing goes much longer, right? Um, what we're doing instead is just sort of kicking that can down the road and hoping that we come to a point where there is a vaccine and there is a, something else that that solves the, the underlying issue. Um, but at some point, you know, the, 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 the uh, well is going to run dry and there's not enough, um, everybody is going to be in real, real trouble. Um, you know, the commercial side of the business, we see rents already changing um, to the negative for many retail centers, as an example. Um, and that uh, that's going to, uh, that's a, a healthy thing, right? Demand supply curve. But on the other hand, if we have this eviction moratorium, then we can't necessarily change them as quickly as maybe they should. Um, so you start adding these external pressures and then the market isn't as efficient. And so you know, my economist hat just doesn't like these sort of bland um, sw uh, swaths of, of um, jurisdiction coming down from on high. I think uh, it, it's much better to actually 
take it on a case by case basis. I hope that you know on a local jurisdiction standpoint, each of the individual cities and counties can continue to you know use what they will and what is apt for their particular area. Um, if I give have any comfort in this recent announcement from um, Mr. Newsom, it's that you know ultimately we're real estate is still a local uh, market, and uh, you know as much as the state has influence. You know, hopefully the the submarket areas of what happens on a particular asset is um, a little bit more insulated but we'll we'll see it's definitely a concern and i think the biggest concern is you know the willingness to just change the rules on a on a whim without really understanding the un unintended consequences yeah no it's i think that's a good point and you know the locality or the local nature of real estate i think it makes a big you think you have a good point there and particularly because the uh nature of uh the pandemic has been really localized too in some areas i mean in some areas it's no big deal in other areas it's you know really hot at times and it kind of goes back and forth so i think to your point there it really does need to be more of a local issue than you know probably a state issue at this point um, so speaking of impacts in the market what do you see as maybe having the biggest impact on the health of the market next year i mean is it is it just you know where we're at with the pandemic, or is it you know that and you know if uh, rates uh, tick up at all? Is it the election? You don't have to get political, but I mean, is the election going to have a, that big an impact or another order for Newsom? Unemployment rates? What's your take? Yeah, I mean, look, rates are at historic lows, and the Fed is telling us they're not going to be going up. So you know, is that a silver lining? I think it is. I think it helps you know get us through. Um, the, the ele election year is always a little bit, um, you know, uh, questionable which way things are going to go, which party ends up being in which houses and obviously in the executive branch. Um, I think a lot of investors, when in an election year, they're just going to wait and see and just see how the tenor of the market goes. Um, so, yeah, we got to get through the next month and see what happens there. Um, you know, I have my own predictions as to what would be better for our commercial real estate market on one side or the other, but I won't go, <laughs> go into that. Um, uh, but, you know, I think if we found a vaccine, right, for pandemic and it happened, we have that vaccine and it's effective and we have, you know, 100 million doses tomorrow, the damage is done. The economy's in a really, really bad position. Um, we're definitely in a recession. And so it's going to be a two-year a two recovery minimum from here. Now, we're probably not going to have that widespread vaccine available until, um, you know, next March or April, right? So um, the election year is sort of a, a factor, right? But the, I think the, the market's general attitude about what happens with COVID-19 is by far more important. Um, you know, so I, I'm waiting to see what happens on the vaccine front, whether, you know, really it's this thing is as large of a threat as people make it out to be or not is really inconsequential because what matters is perception. Perception is nine tenths of the law. And right now, perception is is hugely important with when it comes to COVID. So as soon as that is off the table is the only time that we'll actually be able to start, you know, rebuilding from here. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Well, and... <laughs> I mean, it's it's not only you know perception, but I mean the perception often I think is lagging behind where we're at you know with the science and the data. I mean, sure. there's just no way that uh, people's perceptions or even you know politicians' statements and stuff that they just can't keep up with where we actually currently are on the ground in any in any given location. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, I mean the the one thing I would say is um, you know the, 
you take a small example in the mask rules, right? Um, I'm not an anti-masker by any sense of the word. I, I want to follow the directions. I'm a rule follower, right? Regardless of whether it's right or not, I follow the rules. It's just what I do. Um, but you look at it and you say, originally the you know, announcements were, we have, you know, masks are not important, don't wear a mask. Or if you, no, wait, you, you do have to have a mask, but only an N95. Wait, no, actually, let's just cut up a piece of t-shirt, put it on your face. Yeah, the rules changed, right? So what I think what we need is to, even though the data is evolving and we're changing and our attitudes have shifted, what we need is just somebody to say, this is what it is. We take it for, or we leave it and we move forward. We need consistency. When we don't have consistency, we have um, a lot of uh, uncomfortable markets. And you know, uncomfortable markets are, are really not good for anybody. No, totally agree. So let's get back to the election for a moment. I, I'm curious your thoughts on this. We've got two big ballot initiatives uh, that uh, impact commercial real estate on this year's ballot. Uh, Prop 15 on split roll and then Prop 21 on rent control. And, uh, you know, Governor Newsom's already taken a position on one of them. I'm not sure if he's taken another one, uh, another position on the other one as of this uh, filming. But what's your take on, you know, the potential impacts on the market? I mean, obviously, these, these are two huge issues. Yeah, I mean, a split role is a bad idea. Um, you know, both of these measures are bad and for different reasons, obviously. Um, the You know, they, it comes from a, a, a perception or a confusion about, you know where how things get paid for right um you know we're going to tax the rich so we can give it to the poor um you know it's a really really nice uh sentiment but it's not actually true um and you know part of the issue with with rent control as an example is that you remove the first off it doesn't address the core problem particularly in california and that is we don't have enough capacity we don't have enough housing we don't have enough ability to put people where they want to be. People love this state. They love being here and more and more people want to be here. So we need, if we're going to encourage that, we need to give them a place to live. Otherwise, rent's going to go up. It's supply demand. Um, you know, so there's no way to legislate that problem away. Um, you know, the particular, the particulars of this proposition, you know, Newer housing, 15 years, I think, is the cutoff time where, um, you know, you wouldn't, it would not be subject to rent control. Okay, so you can build brand new, but right now the costs of building brand new with labor, with um, particularly lumber during uh, COVID-19, uh, are so, so, so incredibly high. All you can build is Class A plus. Uh, properties. You can't build workforce housing, which is what, the, what we need as, as Californians. So that doesn't solve it either. So what do we need? We need the ability to do more houses cheaper, which means we need the ability to, um, to just get things done quicker with a lot less um, you know, tied up in red tape and, and just allow people to, to build housing for people that need it. It's really that simple. And this measure ignores all of that and instead, you know, tries to um, put in, in place a structure that we have seen over and over and over again in many, many jurisdictions, both inside California and outside, that it just doesn't work. It ends up favoring folks that can, um, that can work the system and stay in their apartment forever and ever, even if they're not physically there. And, and, and it doesn't reward the folks that actually need this. So I think it's disingenuous 
um, at, in a in a um, like gracious way, um, and in some ways it, it's, it's sort of evil um, to put it the way it is. That, that's you know I'm not gonna I don't get into po politics, but when I think things are bad for people, I'm gonna be you know not parse words. Um, the split the split role is also a, a problematic issue. You know we can talk to our blue in the face about whether. Um, Prop 13 originally was a good idea or not, but here, here we are and we're used to it. The market has it built in. And if we split that for commercial and industrial folks only, um, again, it comes from a, a level of ignorance about how people pay for things. The vast majority of commercial leases are absolute triple net leases, which means things like real estate taxes are born and paid for by the tenant in full. And so if real estate taxes go up, the tenants' expenses go up. There's only so much renegotiation of that lease that's gonna happen. And so if the tenants' expenses go up, your McDonald's hamburger is gonna be more expensive. There's only one way to make that happen, right? Um, you know, a lot of these tenants are small businesses. A lot of the owners are small businesses. And um, the, you know, the protections, the quote unquote protections of small business in this measure really aren't, don't do anything to really help. Um, and again, it's, we're, we think we're, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. And, uh, you know, I just feel like uh, if we actually were able to sit down and come up with a measure that um, could work and solve the inherent problem, then, then maybe we could do that. But these two are not it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think you may, I think you've got a good point there, particularly on split role. I mean, it's just, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't get to, and it, I think it belies a, a fundamental misunderstanding. You kind of touched on it, uh, how the market works. And this gets back to just, you know, do businesses pay taxes or do, do they not pay taxes? And in reality, they do not pay taxes. It always gets passed on to the consumer at the end. And so I think that, you know, to your point that this is that if we uh, have a split role system in California, prices go up for the tenants and that goes up for the consumer in the end. They, they're the ones who end up paying that bill, that tax bill. So um, if you're interested, if you're watching this and you're interested, uh, the California MBA is uh, on is definitely opposed to both Prop 15 and Prop 21. And you can find the links to the no campaigns, the opposed campaigns in the description below here to find out more information about how you can get involved or, or uh, just uh, or even support the campaigns. Um, so Cody, I've got one last question for you. We just started our uh, membership month drive this year. And so if you're interested, if you're watching this and you're not a member of the California MBA, you can join now in October and get a 15% discount on your first year membership dues. And so Cody, you're now a board member. You're with uh, Slack Capital. It's been a member for a long time. What's your, what would be your, uh, what would you say to a colleague in the industry that maybe wasn't a member of the California MBA, maybe on the fence about whether or not it's worth it? Yeah, well, I mean, now that I'm a board member, I can see much more intimately how crucial uh, the California MBA is to our industry. Um, you know, we see what is happening, especially politically, that affects our industry in re real time. We know exactly what is happening, uh, um, you know, on the Capitol Mall in Sacramento, what's being talked about, and we're able to really inject our perspective on things so that lawmakers can make inform decisions and create good policy um, that's gonna reflect our needs. So for that reason alone, I think it's absolutely crucial that anybody that's involved in the finance industry on the residential and the commercial real estate side be involved in the Cal MBA. 
we have to be a part of that conversation um, for the good of our clients and the good of our companies. Um, the, the other one that's the more touchy-feely part of it is, you know, I've been able to connect through just being around the California Mortgage Bankers Association and now as a board member with so many incredible different people, um, both on the board, but just at all the events and at, you know, all the other membership benefits, um, that it, it's really become, it started to make my career feel less of a job and more of a you know, lifestyle, you know, what I want to do. Um, I love being around people that I that have the same sort of feelings uh, and the same values that I do. And we get to share a lot of that both in business and in life through our, our involvement together. So yeah, if there's anybody that you know is considering it and hesitating in any way, shape, or form, you, please you can reach out to me and ask. But I I definitely highly recommend membership. Yeah. Well, thanks, Cody. Yeah. And if you're interested in membership right now. You can go to joincmba.com and find out more about how you can get the, uh, the this month's uh, incentive discount uh, for joining. Again, you get 15% off your first year uh, membership dues. And so, and Cody, again, thanks again for the uh, conversation today. It's been uh, nice yeah. to uh, catch up and uh, chat about the market and about uh, sort of your perspective on it. And hopefully we'll uh, see each other in person at some point in the not too distant future. Looking forward to it, Dustin. Thank you very much and be well. Absolutely, you too. And so if you enjoyed this conversation, make sure and subscribe to us here on our YouTube channel. We're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, we'll see you next week for another episode of Connect.